Hey, you know, if you've been around for the last few weeks, that these are some days in which we are thinking together about the power of the risen Christ and the purpose of the risen Christ to bring transformation into the lives of his people. These are days when we're talking about transformed. Why it is that God wants to transform us, who it is that he transforms us, and how it is that he transforms us. We've talked about the why, we've talked about the who. Last Sunday, we began talking about the how. If you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that I presented this idea to you of transformation like a three-legged stool or a three-legged table. If you can envision a table, we would call it the table of transformation. And on top of that table is your life and my life. And God is working transformation in our lives. But the three legs that hold up that table are the three influences that God uses to actually sustain in us transformation. Last week we talked about the first one. Let me give it to you. Uh, If you weren't here, you can write it down. We learned last Sunday that the agent of transformation is the Holy Spirit. That was Romans chapter number 8, if you want to go back and read that or reread that. The agent of transformation is the Holy Spirit. Simple truth is this. I can't change myself. Frank said this in his testimony. We can't change ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to change us. That's the first leg of transformation, first influence. Second, or or the, the final influence that we'll talk about next Sunday is the people that transform us. And the people that transform us are our community. Now, I'm not talking about the community that we live in, but I'm talking about our church community, our fellowship, our our Christian friends, and our small groups. These are the people who speak and exemplify and model and help bring transformation into our lives. And God willing, we'll talk about that next Sunday. Today, we're going to think about this, the truth that transforms us. And I want you to write it down. The truth that transforms us is found in the Bible. The truth that transforms us is found in the Bible. Now, like any three-legged table, if you pull out one leg, then the table falls over. The functionality of the table is, is uh, limited or even destroyed if you remove only one of the legs. And in this process of transformation, I need the Holy Spirit, I need my church, and I need the Bible. And all three of those legs matter And if I pull out one, then the process of transformation in my life is going to be uh, thwarted. Every one of those legs matter, and that means the Bible matters. In fact, I'd love for you to jot this down somewhere because it's an undeniable, fundamental discipleship truth that I don't ever want you to forget. It's really simple. It's to say that the Bible is necessary. It's an important word. The Bible is necessary for my transformation. It's not that it's a nice add-on, you know, if it's really the spiritual Christians that really, they're the ones that read their Bible. No, listen, it is a fundamental fact of discipleship that the Bible is necessary for my transformation. In fact, would you say that out loud with me? I know you're writing it, but I want you to say it out loud. Let's affirm it together. The Bible is necessary for my transformation. It really, really is. And while we know that and we write it in our notes and we affirm it out loud together and intuitively as a follower of Jesus, I know that the Bible is necessary for my transformation. The sad fact is that far too many Christ followers 
rarely read their Bibles. It really is true. In fact, 10 years ago, Lifeway Christian Resources um, did uh, an initiative. They launched an initiative called the Transformational Discipleship Initiative. This was an effort for Southern Baptists to discover what are the key elements in a truly transformational process of a disciple's life. And so they addressed a number of issues, but one of the things that they did was that they surveyed 3,000, not just Southern Baptists, but 3,000 Protestant churchgoers, mostly evangelicals, but not all, 3,000 Protestant churchgoers. And they asked them a question about Bible engagement. Essentially, how often do you read your Bible on your own? Now, this study was done 10 years ago. Listen carefully. I'm certain the numbers are worse today. Now, they're bad enough as I'm going to give them to you, but they're 10 years old, okay? Here's what they discovered when they asked 3,000 mostly evangelical church attenders, how often do you read your Bible? Here's what they discovered. 55%, over half of the people who sat in evangelical churches most every Sunday morning said, I rarely, sporadically, or never read my Bible on my own. That's an amazing statistic. That that over half of the people who will go to church across America today in what we would consider evangelical churches are not going to read their Bible in the next week, month, or year on their own. 26% of the people in that study said, well, I, I pick it up and read it a few times a week. But only 19%, less than 2 out of 10 people who sit in church on a Sunday morning said, I have a practice of reading my Bible every day. Less than 2 out of 10. And yet, we engage in social media every day. We watch television every day. Some people for hours every day. We take in news stories. We hear opinions from talking heads on our news programs every single day. And so we are being influenced. There are some voices speaking into the way that we view life and the world and our place in it and what is right and wrong and ethical and not. There are voices speaking to us Sadly, it's just not the voice of the Bible. And if you don't think those numbers are too alarming, and I hope you are alarmed by them, please understand that it gets worse. These numbers foretell a very dismal future for Christianity in America if something doesn't change and if God doesn't bring revival because Bible engagement diminishes with every successive generation. So the fact is, if most Christians sitting in church today read their Bible only once a month, once every quarter, once a year, and that's all, then their children will likely read it less. And their grandchildren will likely read it even less again. In fact, consider the worldview of millennials. Let me say, I'm not beating up on millennials. I know sometimes millennials get get a bad rap, and I'm all for the millennials, Okay. But but consider the worldview of millennials. Now, millennials are those people who are between the ages, essentially, of 20 
and 40. It's those born between 1982 and the turn of the millennium, the the, uh, year 2000. By the way, 61% of millennials in America consider themselves to be Christians, which is far lower than the the overall numbers for Americans who consider themselves to be Christians. 61% of millennial Americans say, I am a Christian. But when they were asked, do they agree with six statements of Christian orthodoxy? And those six statements are these. They were asked, do you agree, number one, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life? Number two, God is all-powerful and all-knowing. He's the creator and the ruler. Number three, salvation is a gift from God. You cannot earn your way into heaven. Number four, Satan is real. Number five, Christians have a responsibility to share their faith. And number six, the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. When the 61% of, of millennials who consider themselves to be um, uh, Christians, when they were asked, do you agree with this, this statement, only 2% said they agreed with it completely. 2%. And so it's obvious when you consider that we do not believe the Bible and we don't know the Bible that we desperately need a renewal a resurgence, a revival of the influence of Scripture in our lives. In fact, I would just say to you that there's only two ways that you could come up with such low statistics as the one that I just gave you from those millennials, and it's this. It's one of two things influencing that. One is either they are completely biblically ignorant, they just don't know what the Bible says, and that's, that's a, a great possibility. Or secondly, they know what the Bible says, but they don't care. And so that means they have a very low view of Scripture and its authority in our lives. It's obvious, isn't it, that something needs to change within the people of God if the people of God are going to be changed. And that is that we need to understand the influence, the power, the authority of God's Word in our lives. Now, this is the reason that I've asked you to turn to John 17 today. It's a wonderful passage where we can learn about this, and I should say to you that it is from beginning to end, from the first verse to the last, John 17 is a prayer. It's a prayer prayed by Jesus. In fact, it's the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Scriptures, and it was prayed on what was probably the longest night of Jesus' life. This prayer um, sort of transitions from one scene, one moment in Christ's life into the next. Uh, It closes the scene in the upper room where Jesus is with his disciples, teaching them, sharing Passover, introducing communion, washing their feet, uh, giving them the promises of the Holy Spirit, telling them he's going away. That's all happening in the upper room. At the end of that, he prays this prayer. And then out of this prayer, they leave the upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested in a few hours and crucified the next morning. In fact, if you look in verse number 1, chapter 17, verse number 1, he begins, as every prayer ought to begin, by saying, Father, he says, the, he says Father, the hour has come. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, this is it. It's time. Father, the hour for which I have been born has come. The hour for which you sent me into this world has come. The hour of my arrest, my crucifixion, my passion, my suffering, my death and resurrection, the hour has come. And in this prayer, he, he prays what has been called the high priestly prayer 
of Jesus. Because like a high priest, he functions in this role of seeing to the glory of God and caring for the people of God. And those are the two passions of this prayer. You'll hear it repeatedly as we read it in a moment. Be glorified, O Lord, and God watch over, care for these, your people. By the way, I would suggest to you that's a pretty good model for us if we want to know how to pray rightly. I would recommend to you that model of prayer. So much of our prayers are only themed with God, gimme, 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 gimme. God, fix, fix, fix. Do, do, do. Do what I want, what I want. Make my life better and easier. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray about our needs. It's not. But our prayers would be more Christ-like if they would be centered not on what we want, but on the glory of God and the blessing of other people regardless of what happens in our lives. Well, that's the way that Jesus prays in this passage. I want us to read it, beginning in verse number one. You follow along. Now, uh, as you know, I love the King James translation, and that's what I'm reading from, but I am going to change every thee and thy to you because it'll read much more clearly, and there are a lot of these and thous and thys in this prayer. Verse number one says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life unto as many as you have given to him. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God through or and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent in the world, or through Jesus whom you have sent into the world. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, would you glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I'm just going to stop at the end of verse number five and just give you a chance to go, wow. (laughs) Because that is a wow moment in this prayer. When Jesus, in his prayer, says, I am ready now to do this to go to this moment of crucifixion and resurrection for which I was born. I have done what you sent me to do. And now, O Father, would you be glorified in this and would you give to me the glory that I had with you before the world began? Wow. Philippians 2 tells us that when Christ became a man, he laid aside his glory. He didn't lose his deity. He didn't stop being God, but he laid aside the benefits of his glory. He laid it aside and took on flesh to become a man so that he might be our redeemer. Well, now he's getting ready to die in that flesh and be buried and resurrected and ascend. And he's saying, when I come home, I'm looking forward to that glory that you and I shared throughout all eternity. It's a wow moment in the longing of Jesus. Verse number six, I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Uh, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things, whatever you have given uh, to me, have come from you. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me. And they have received them and have known surely that I have come out from you. And they have believed that you did send me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but I pray for them which you have given me. For they are yours. 
All of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's a reference to Judas. Now I am coming to you. And these things I am speaking in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, even so, I also am sending them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. By the way, do you know who Jesus is praying for in verse 20? Yeah, it's us. Those who would believe on, them, or on him through their word. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I want you to notice when you read through uh, this prayer in John chapter number 17, that by virtue of the, of the people for whom Jesus is praying, he makes a distinction between two very different, two very distinct groups of people or we might say two very distinct spheres of life or spheres in which or realms in which people live. Write, write them down. First of all, in his prayer, you see clearly the world. Jesus is mentioning over and over again, nearly a dozen times in his prayer, he mentions the world. Look at verse 6 as an example. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name unto the men whom you have given to me out of the world. Over and over again, he mentions the world. Verse 9, verse 11, 12, 14, 16. Over and over, he talks about the world. Now, when Jesus talks about the world in his prayer, he's not talking about the planet. He's not referencing the spinning ball of dirt. He's talking about the people in the world, or what we might say would be the, the culture of the world or the world system. It's the lost people, the unsaved people who make up the world. It's in the same way that he says, for God so loved the world. It's, it's this world filled with lost people. That's one group he identifies in his prayer. The second group that he identifies in his prayer are those that have been called out of the world. Uh, look at it in verse number six again. I have manifested your name unto the men which you have given to me out of the world. So there's a second group. There's the world, and then there are those that God has given to him who have come out of the world. Look at it in verse number nine. You'll see it there maybe a little more clearly. I pray for them. 
I do not pray for the world, but I am praying for them that you have given me, implied, out of the world. Two very distinct groups of people. The world, those called out of the world. Now, let me just say to you, you ought to want to be in the second group. Amen? And I hope you are in the second group. You might be asking, well, how do I get to be a part of the second group? How does somebody get called out of the world to become a part of that group of people called out of the world? Which, by the way, is the church. The people called out of the world uh, is the, the people who, or are the people who have trusted in Jesus as their personal Savior. So how does that happen? Well, he tells us. I mean, it's clear in his prayer, in the language of his prayer. Uh, the first part of being called out of the world is that God calls us. You see this in verse 6, verse 11, verse 12, when Jesus prays for those whom God had given him. Let me show it to you again, verse number 6, once again. I have manifested your name unto the men who you gave me out of the world. Look at verse number 11. Now I'm no more in the world, but these, these are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given to me. They were yours and now you've given them to me. Now this has to do with the sovereignty of God and the call of God and the gift of faith that God gives to a person. As God calls us to faith in Jesus, he's calling us out of the world and giving us to his son. We belong to his son. The second part of that process is that we receive, as we're called, we receive the calling or we receive the message of Christ. Look at verse number eight. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them. Can we be clear? Can I be honest with you? Not everybody receives the message of Christ. They don't. Some people hear the word of God, and they reject it. Some people hear the message of Christ, they say, I don't believe it. Some people hear the, the call of salvation, they say, I'm not interested. Jesus illustrated this in the parable of the sower when he said a sower went out to seed. He's sowing the seed of the word of God, the message of Christ, and it falls on different soil. And some soil it takes root and some soil it doesn't take root. It just depends on are you going to receive the message. Here's my encouragement to you. Receive the message of Christ. Don't reject it. So he calls us by faith. We receive the message and then we believe. This is verse 8 as well. We believe in the person of Christ. Verse 8 says, For I have given unto them the words which you gave me. They have received them, and they have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. So they're saving faith. God calls me to himself. I receive the word as it comes to me. Then I believe that Christ is God in the flesh, that he's the Savior. And I believe in the person of Christ. That's how, that's how people come to faith. That's how you leave the world and you become a part of those that have been called out of the world. Now, let me just say to you that these two groups of people, the world and those called out of the world, the church, these are two very different, two very distinct groups of people. And sometimes the church makes the mistake of thinking if we were more like the world, then the world would be more accepting of us and we could be more effective in our ministry if we were just more worldly or more world-like. You need to hear me say, if y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. 
Listen to me, that is upside down. It is not our similarities to the world that make us effective in gospel ministry. It is our distinctiveness from the world which makes us effective. Jesus says that these two spheres, the world and those called out of the world, are very different. He describes the differences. Look at verse number 25. Notice what he says about the world in that verse. We didn't read it, but listen to verse 25. He says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. Well, there's the first distinction between the world and the church. The world doesn't know God. Now, that doesn't mean they don't know about God. It doesn't mean they haven't heard of God, and it doesn't even mean that they don't necessarily believe that God exists. It just simply means that they don't understand God. They haven't come to know Him. That's one identifier of the world. They don't know God. Number two, the world is opposed to Christ. The world stands in opposition to to Jesus. Go back one page to chapter 15, just before this prayer begins. Look at chapter 15, listen to verse number 18. Jesus speaking to his disciples said, if the world hates you, know this, that it hated me before it hated you. Here's what Jesus says. The attitude of the world is toward uh, Christ. The world hates Christ. Now you may say, but now pastor, I know some non-Christians who don't hate Jesus. I I know some some people who don't necessarily believe in Christ, but they're they're not hostile toward Christ. He's not describing every individual person's attitude. He's saying the posture of the world is one of opposition, of rejection, and hating Christ. They don't know Christ and they are or they don't know God and they are opposed to Christ. The third thing that he says, chapter number 17 and verse number 15 is that the world is the domain of the evil one. I do not pray verse 15 says, I'm back in chapter 17. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. He says that in the world, this world is under the operation, operational control of Satan. In fact, the Bible calls him the God, little g, of this world. And so we live in a world marked by divine ignorance, um, hatred of of the gospel of Christ, and the domain of the blindness and the evil of Satan. That is... Those are the defining marks of the world. Well, certainly those things don't define the church, right? So the church is different than that, right? Well, sure the church is different than that. In fact, look at what he says about the church in verses 14, 15, and 16. I've given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Look at verse number 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Well, he says, those who've been called out of the world, while they are still in the world, we are not of the world. And so the, the word of means we are not one with, we are not in lockstep with, we are different from, even though we dwell among. We're in the world, but not of the world. Second thing he says about the church in verse number 14 is that not only is Christ hated uh, by the world, but the church is hated by the world. Verse number 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Now, you just need to know that when the church operates as God would have us to, the world will rise up in opposition to the church. He says that the world hates the church. 
The third thing that he says in verse number 18 and verse number 20 is that this church called out of the world has now been sent back into the world. Look at verse number 18. He says, as you have sent me into the world, even so I am sending them into the world. And then in verse number 21, they, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So let me bring all that together because this might seem a little complex thinking about what the world is like and what the church is like and how we're different and we're in the world but not of the world. Here's a simple definition of what it means to be in the church, to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has believed the gospel and come out from the world in order to go back into the world to share the gospel so that others may believe and come out of the world as well. Now, is that as clear as mud for you? A Christian is someone called out, sent back, so that we can help others to come out of the world. And if we are to be successful in that mission, then we must be changed. We must be transformed. And this is what Jesus prays for in verse number 17, which is just the key verse in chapter number 17. He prays that we would be changed. And he uses the word sanctified. Look at it. Verse number 17 is a prayer of Jesus Christ, very pointedly, very specifically for my life and yours and for his church. It's a three-part prayer. He says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Now, let me tell you what he means. When Jesus says, sanctify them, that's the first part of his prayer. Father, I'm praying for those people who've been called out of the world. Those that you've given me, they're out of the world. They're in the church. Here's my prayer, sanctify them. The Greek word is hagiazo. It means make them holy. Set them apart. Make them other than the world. Make them different. Make them sacred and set apart unto me. They are to be changed, Jesus prays. He says, sanctify them. And then he tells us how that sanctification happens. Go on in verse number 17. Sanctify them in thy truth. In thy truth. Now, what is truth? It's the famous question that Pilate asked Jesus, right? What is truth? Simply put, truth is what is so, what is reality, because God has said it is so. I want you to get this very clearly. So if you're listening, I want you to shout amen. amen. Listen carefully. Truth is what God says is true. So truth is not necessarily what I perceive as being true. Truth is not necessarily what the culture says is true. Truth is not even necessarily what my family, closest friends, or maybe even my parents say is true. Here's what truth is. Truth is what God says is so. Sanctify them through what you say is so, through your truth. And then he adds a word of clarification in verse number 17 when he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 
The Greek word for word is logos. It means the communication. It means, God, what you have communicated to us, your mind, your heart, what you say is so, you have communicated to us, and it is your word, your communication, that tells us what is true. And so the Bible is the source of revelation. The Bible is where God has revealed to us what is so. So here's the point. If you and I are to be changed so that our lives are set apart, sanctified, different from the world that we've been called out of, it will only happen as the transformation occurs because of the influence of God's word. Do you see the problem when the overwhelming majority of Christian people do not read their Bibles? It's the reason that the overwhelming majority of Christian lives look like the world. So two quick things. And then we'll be done. Number one, write it down. The Bible changes or transforms the way I think. The Bible transforms how we think. Scripture says, as a man thinks, so is he. We understand that every action is preceded by a thought. What I do externally, I've already processed internally. I've already mulled over and decided in my mind the actions that my, that my body will take or not. And so I don't need necessarily immediately, first of all, to be changed externally. I need my thinking changed. And the Bible transforms how we think. Look at verse 25 again. O righteous father, the world has not known you. So the world does not understand God. They don't understand truth. As I mentioned, it doesn't mean they don't believe in him. It means they have not come to the place where they can think rightly because they don't understand how God thinks. And so worldly thinking, devoid of godly thinking or godly mindedness or godly influence, is going to be naturally, worldly, carnal, lost ways of thinking. He says the world has not learned to think like you think, to understand who you are. But we have learned about you. Look at verse number 26. He says in verse number 25, the world hasn't known you. Keep reading verse 25. But I have known you, and these, that is those called out of the world, have known that you sent me. In other words, the world doesn't know God, but Christ knows God. Christ is God. And those called out of the world know Christ. So if I know Christ, do you understand? Then I understand, I'm coming to understand who God is because of my relationship to Christ. He says, the world doesn't know you, but But I know you, and these that we've called out of the world, they know you. Verse 26, and I've declared unto them your name. I've revealed you unto them, and I will continue to declare it. And the love wherewith you have loved me is in them, and I will be in them. And so when we know Christ, we do come to understand the mind of God. We come to understand the character of God by knowing his name, and we come to understand his love and his compassion. So the world cannot know or understand how God thinks, but those of us who have been called out of the world are to undergo the sanctifying process of receiving the word of God, the revelation of God, which aligns our way of thinking with the way that God thinks. Now let's apply that in some pretty practical ways. Can you think of any current cultural issues where the thinking of the world probably should be different, or or the thinking of the church, I should say, should probably be different than the thinking 
or the viewpoint of the world. Anything come to mind? We could be here all afternoon, couldn't we? Well, we, since we're uh, honoring and, and partnering with our crisis pregnancy centers today, let me just start with that one, the obvious one. What about, what about life? W- when it comes to the issue of the sanctity of life and the debate over uh, uh, abortion and choice as opposed to life, should the view of the church be different than the view of the world? Hello, church. Should it be different? Amen. Absolutely, it should be different. There's no question it should be different. Because the world says that this decision about life is a woman's decision, my body, my choice. It's my decision alone. And besides, whatever decision I make will be an ethical decision because I am not ending a life in abortion. I am simply removing a mass of cells and developing tissue. That's the viewpoint of the world. But we know that God has said something different. That God has said that life is created in his image and that from the womb he weaves us together and that every life has intrinsic value because it is made in the image of God. And the church has the divine grace to be able to align our thinking with God's thinking. If you understand, say amen. Amen. Absolutely. We align our thinking with God's. Can I say to you, you, as a follower of Jesus, your view on abortion or life should be formed not by the culture, not by your friends, not by your family, but by the living word of God and what it says. What about another issue? Frank and Jackie shared their story with us and very transparent about the struggle with pornography. What about that issue? Because there are plenty of people in the world that would say, what's the big deal? Pornography is simply a a form of adult entertainment. What's the big deal of pornography? It's not hurting anybody. But we know that the Bible says something different about sexuality. We know the Bible says something different about the value of women. We know that pornography wars against the soul, that lust wars against the soul and shackles our spiritual development. We know that it objectifies women who are made in the image of Almighty God and we are told to treat all of them with respect and honor due our mothers and our sisters. And so every Christian man ought to say, this is an area that I cannot play around in. This is an area I cannot embrace because God has caused me to think differently about it. What about uh, the issues uh, that are so prevalent in our community and our nation in these days surrounding gender and marriage and family and sexuality? Now, the world thinks, and by the way, this is a relatively new phenomenon in our world, but the world now is fully convinced that gender is non-binary. It still messes me up when I have to fill out a form online and they want to know my gender. And they say, male, female, or other. I'm like, I'm old school. There should only be two choices here. But the world believes, the world espouses the value that gender is not simply male or female, that it is a spectrum of part male, part female, or that you choose what your gender is. But do you understand, loved ones, the Bible says something different. God created them male 
and female. Can I get a witness from the church? This is what God's word says. Now, it doesn't mean that we're unkind to transgendered people. It doesn't mean that we don't love our friends and neighbors and family members who are transgender. And listen, in the culture that we live in, there will be more transgender people next year than there are this year. And if you don't have somebody in your family transgender today, you will in a few years or in a generation. So I'm not saying we're not loving or we're not kind or we're not compassionate. Of course, we're all of those things. But we think along the lines of and we stand upon the authority of the Word of God. The world says that marriage and family is fluid and that you and I decide what marriage is and what a family is. But we know the Bible says something different, that marriage and family is not a cultural invention relative to the, to the season or the, uh, the time in which you live. It is a construct of Almighty God given as a fundamental institution to the human family. God determined what marriage is. We don't determine it. And so we don't have the right to change it. What about the issue of sexuality? The world says sexuality is completely amoral. And that any expression of sexuality or sexual behavior is just as valid as any other expression of your sexual desire. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, LGBTQ+, whatever. And that it's all ethical, it's all moral, it's all valid. And yet we know something different, right? We know that the Bible says that God gave the intimacy of the sexual union for expression within the confines of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. And so our thinking ought to be different because the Bible changes the way in which we think. Now, I need to tell you that whenever the church, because of cultural pressure and a desire, which I will affirm as a valid desire to, to express kindness and compassion to our culture, whenever the church begins to answer these questions without the authority of Scripture, it will always end up in a bad place. If you don't know it, as we speak, there is a war happening in United Methodism. The United Methodist Church is in a war right now over the issue of gender, marriage, and sexuality. And here's what's going to happen. It's going to split the United Methodist denomination. It will split over this issue. It's already happened in the, in the uh, Presbyterian denomination. It's already been the cause of the formation, largely the cause of the formation of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which broke out of the Southern Baptist, largely over this very issue of the authority of Scripture as it relates to marriage, gender, and sexuality. Just this week, because I was interested in their position, I researched the website of a local Baptist church in our community who have taken a very clear position on these issues of gender and and, uh, sexuality and and marriage and family and um, and have have very publicly said we are an an affirming and all-inclusive church and they've they've, uh, created a statement saying that that every person, no matter of sexual orientation, 
Uh, we'll receive all the benefits of membership. You can be baptized. You can receive communion. You can uh, receive membership. You can be married in our church. You can be ordained to ministry. Same-sex couples, just like every other person. And I, I was interested in how they arrived at that decision. And to their credit, on their website, they've got a full explanation with a 30-minute video explaining the pastor from the pulpit, explaining how they came to that decision. But here's what I was interested in, especially. That in 30 minutes of describing how they came to affirm this position as a church, they talked a lot about congregational input. They talked a lot about your voices were heard. They talked a lot about the diversity of our membership and how we all spoke into it. But not one single time in 30 minutes did they say, we have looked in the Bible and thus says the Lord. And when the church stops to claim and stand on the authority of Scripture, then it will go south every single time. The Word of God changes the ways in which we think. But not just on these big cultural issues, on the more mundane, the everyday issues as well. Things like it changes the way I think about money and possessions and, and it changes the way I think about parenting and how I view what are good parenting uh, skills and, and strategies and how I view education and what I think about forgiveness and reconciliation and all of the things we deal with every day. The Bible changes how we think. Number two, very quickly, the Bible changes or transforms how I live. The Word of God transforms how I live. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16. It says, I do not pray that, they sh that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. He says in verse number 16, they are not of the world. In other words, they, it means to be one with. They are in the world, but they do not live like the world lives. Now, I could spend a lot of time about that. Let me just move on, though, to close. Understand that the Word of God changes the way we think. The Word of God changes the way that we live so that our thinking and our lifestyles align with the mind of God. The world can't do that. They don't know God. But we've been called out of the world, and the Word transforms us so we live and think differently. So that living and thinking differently, we have the power in Christ to go back into the world where we still live and invite people to come out and become a part of those who know Christ as Savior. If y'all understand, say amen. So do you see the absolute necessity of the Word of God in the life of every believer? I'm going to leave you today with six suggestions on how you can take some steps to bring the Word of God into your life. So you won't be one of those 2% of people, 2 out of 10, who 20% um, of people who read the Bible in the week. Let me give you some suggestions quickly. Number one, I would suggest that you always bring your Bible to church with you and you take notes in church. Now, you know that, right? I say that almost every Sunday. Bring your Bible to church. And so if you'll bring your Bible, you'll have in front of you the words that I'm reading, and you'll be able to mark up your Bible and take notes and record what God is saying to you. It's a good discipline for you. Listen, if you went to math class when you were in high school every week and you never brought your math book to class, guess what? You're failing, all right? No question, end of story. You're failing. When you come to church, bring your Bible and take notes. Number two... Have a systematic plan for reading your Bible on your own during the week. The old saying says, if you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And if you don't have a plan for reading, you won't read. 
And so whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Make a plan. Google a plan. Find a plan. Talk to a friend about a plan. Just have a plan. You may say, I'm going to read one chapter in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament, a psalm and a proverb every day. That's my plan. Do it. It's easy. And it's a good first step. In begin- Do you know that if you read four chapters a day in the Bible, you'd read the entire Bible in one year? Do you know that? Four chapters a day. You can do that in no time. Number three, listen to one teaching sermon during the week. Just listen to some good, good teaching, good preaching during the week. In fact, here's a suggestion. For every podcast or talking head you listen to, for every hour you watch on your conservative news network, listen to one sermon alongside that, all right? Bring that influence into your life. And if you need to know some good, good uh, ones to listen to, I can suggest some. Number four, join a Bible study group. Join a small group. We'll talk about this some next week. But join a group where you're talking about the Bible. Do you know what's true? Some of you hear a sermon every week and you listen dutifully and, you're, and you, you leave out of here encouraged and you know some things, you learn some things and God's speaking to you and then you go out and you never talk about it. It never crosses your lips because there's never a conversation where you're talking about these things. Join a Bible study group where you're talking about the scriptures. Number five, commit scripture to memory. Memorize some verses. Now, I know some of you are going, oh, I just can't do it, preacher. I've tried, man. My memory, whew. I can't remember nothing. What's your social security number? You can remember. What's your phone number? We remember what we need to remember. We remember what's important to us to remember. I'm just saying it's important that you remember the Bible. Memorize it. Start with John eleven thirty five. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Start there. And then find you a verse with three words. But commit the scripture to memory. And then number six, lastly, ask God to give you a hunger for his word. Just say, Lord, here's the truth. I'm so full of, I I just dine on the world all week and and philosophies of this world all week, politics all week and, and career all week. God, I need a hunger for your word in my life. So God, make me hungry. And the Bible says, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Amen? The word of God will change how I think. It will change how I live in alignment with the way God thinks so that I, having been called out of the world, can go back into the world where I still live but I'm not of and invite others to come out and be a part of those who know Christ. What a great privilege we have and what a great and powerful tool God has given us to enable us to do it.